0: When you look at the uh, contemporary uh, bookshelves in stores of magazines and books and you see all the self-help articles in every magazine you can imagine, it's clear that there's uh, some distress and some dis-ease and some hunger for uh, guidance in living uh, life and trying to be happy and to find skillful ways of dealing with the uh, inevitable challenges uh, that we all face in life. And there are many of the magazines and shelves and shelves of books that seem to be stemming from the Buddhist tradition or the Buddhist traditions of teaching and contemporarily there's a lot of interest in uh, Buddhism and meditation and the whole field or the interface between neuroscience and psychology is informed by and substantially informed by Buddhist thought and the understanding of the Buddha's the Buddha's understanding of mind, and so all of these current the current proliferation of interest in the teachings of the Buddha should ask us to really consider and inquire: Well, what did the Buddha really teach, anyway? Because the Buddha was someone who, a human being like us, saw to some degree the conditions of a human life, but was particularly struck by the fact that all beings uh, grow older, um, get sick, and die and that is the root uh, experience of suffering and distress that we all experience and everything else that stems from that is a scramble and a strategy to avoid, prolong, deny, delay, minimize and otherwise try to get through life without experiencing them too much. So when The Bodhisattva found what he believed to be the most skillful, the most effective way of understanding conditions in life and for minimizing the distress and laying the foundation for the most reliable uh, happiness or sense of well-being. He articulated it in his first... Uh, talk, or his first discourse to the five ascetics that he practiced with. And it is essentially a uh, pointing out of the incontrovertible truths that underlie our existence. And he spoke of these truths. Because, as he said, they're beneficial, they belong to the fundamentals of the holy life, they lead to disenchantment, to dispassion, to peace, to knowledge, to enlightenment, to the end of suffering. Now the takeaway point of all that is that the Buddha didn't invent or creatively kind of imagine a good theory for dealing with the conditions of life, but instead he observed the very experience of his very human life and just reported what he discovered, what he'd seen. Much like we here are just looking at our life, just trying to become more aware of what it's actually like to experience this body this mind alone and in relationship to others and then to take the observations that we've gathered today and understand them in a way that minimizes suffering so whether the Buddha ever existed in the world or not what you have discovered today is no different than what he discovered 2,600 years ago. Or what he discovered 2,600 years ago is not so different than what you have discovered and will discover as you continue to practice awareness too. I want to try to speak about these truths that the Buddha recognized, realized, and pointed out, but I want to speak about them not so much from a philosophical or theoretical, religious, or even spiritual point of view, but really from a point of view of what have they got to do with us sitting here? Because that makes it really pragmatic, practical, useful, and you don't have to kind of uh, struggle to figure out what's this got to do with me. Now, the first noble truth is called Dukkha Satcha. Satcha means truth, so it's the truth of Dukkha. Sometimes Dukkha is casually translated as suffering, the truth of suffering, or pain, the truth of pain, or even initially in the early years of the Dharma coming to the West was articulated as life is suffering. That is not a good way to get people interested in what you have to say. Because when you read the titles of all the uh, self-help magazines, they're like, you know, Seven Easy Steps to Perfect Bliss and Enlightenment, Happiness and Contentment, you know, and other forms of, well, happiness. And he's saying, hey, I've got four truths about suffering. Hmm. Okay. But when we look at our life in a, in a, in the way that we see our life mostly, let's face it, we live at the top of the heap of humanity. We have, in one sense, no right to complain, as bad as it is in your life. And it can be pretty bad, you know. I mean. We have physical conditions, we have financial problems, we have relationship traumas, we got got dysfunctional family of origin, we've got dysfunctional family of family. (laughs) (laughs) We've got, you know, that's bad. But look around the world, let's get a reality check. We're still living at the top of the heap. And so it's quite easy to kind of look at our life and say, yeah, there's there's some you know there's some unhappiness and there's some suffering and there's some difficulty and there's some causes of stress etc but all in all it's pretty good really isn't it I mean it is let's face it our lives are pretty good we all well all of us here have the discretionary time and income to come here for 9 days and sit on your butt, (laughs) that's a luxury that most humans in the world do not have. Just don't have. Okay. So we got it pretty good. And so we might wonder, well, what does the Buddha's teachings on suffering have to do with me? Why, Why should I go looking in that direction? when you know it's pretty good well we all have seen this niggling voice in the back of our mind this may be good but isn't there better <laughs> right? I mean you know, this is good but not good enough so we look for something else and what I discovered in my first coming to the Dharma is that it's really challenging. It was difficult for me to open to what the Buddha was actually pointing to when he talked about the truth of dukkha. Because I was young I was in my mid-twenties, I was healthy, I was energetic, I had my whole life except the first 25 years ahead of me and I was pretty um, full of myself and suffering was like, you got to be kidding, life is good. <laughs> and I didn't get it, you know. Life of suffering was just not, not on my radar at all. And it wasn't until after I'd practiced for 10 years and then finally got to Burma and one of Saito Pandita's translators translated the word dukkha as the oppressive nature of experience caught my attention. I began to open to what dukkha might actually mean, because by the age of 35, everybody's experienced the oppressive nature of experience experience to a degree. and I began to open to really what the Buddha was talking about when he talked about the truth of dukkha. In that, and with my continued practice, I've discovered that When we hear the truth of dukkha, we think it applies to everyone but ourselves, because we're not suffering that bad, but we can see it in others. Or we see that, well, the suffering that I experience is just, well, it's just my personal limitation right now. If I work hard, I'll get over it, and then I'll be free of dukkha. And we personalize our suffering thinking that, well, it's just my own limitations, my own inadequacies, my own uh, thing, but really it is possible and others evidently experience a life without Dukkha. And we miss the significance of the Buddhist teaching that this truth of Dukkha applies to everyone. Everyone experiences this. It's universal. It's not like some got it and some don't. So let's look at what the word dukkha means or points to in our experience, both here now and in our life in general. And the first meaning of the word is pain. Dukkha means pain. And everyone in the room has experienced physical discomfort or pain today, right? And we've experienced a lot of pain in our life. You know, whether it's slamming your finger in the door, or, you know, the pain of disease, or the pain of broken bones, or the pain of uh, whatever physical ailment you have, feeling hungry, feeling like not hungry enough, like too full. Uh, There's just lots of discomfort and pain that we feel that's undeniable. It also means or points to the mental, emotional pain that we all feel, like loneliness, angst, fear, jealousy, envy, depression, stress. The list is endless. And I'm sure you've taken a good inventory today of your own mental, emotional sufferings. And they're just vast, they're extensive. And there isn't any one of us that gets through life without experiencing most of them at some time. It's so obvious that there's physical pain It's so obvious that there's mental and emotional pain in our lives and yet it is so easy to overlook, to minimize, to live in denial of it, to just kind of think it's just a temporary phenomenon and it'll soon be over and then we'll be free of it. Not realizing, not understanding that it's ever present in our life. And we just have to look, and we'll see it more and more. The second condition that the word dukkha points to relies or rests on the fact that everything changes. Right now, you may be experiencing good health but we all know how fragile good health really is any one of us can get a diagnosis first day back from the retreat that things aren't so good we might be feeling good but changes is happening in the body and we all are going to get this notice at some point in our life that things don't look good and because we know that things change we forever live with the insecurity and the vulnerability that we can't control conditions and it's not just our health finances our home our relationship our job everything about our life can change in an instant and whatever we have accumulated and acquired and become in our life to provide some sense of security, some sense of safety, some sense of stability in our life, all of it is vulnerable to immediate and catastrophic change in a split second. All of it, And we only have to think of you know the the, the folks living in Japan where the uh, tsunami and the nuclear disaster of a couple of years ago happened, living a life with what seemed to be good conditions relatively, and in the course of you know. A few days, gone. All that security, all that they built up, or even the um, the people of Newton, where there was the the shooting of uh, a few months ago. Not only the people that live there, all of us that know about it and know that we too are just as vulnerable as all of those children and adults. At any time, this can happen to any one of us or anyone we love, and we can't, what can we do about it? And we know this. Somewhere just on the periphery of our full awareness and acknowledgement, we live with this fact of vulnerability, insecurity, uh, knowledge that our conditions for happiness now don't last. That is unsatisfactory. That just does not allow us to be as happy and as safe and enjoy an enduring sense of well-being that we might like it's just not possible if you see this condition in your life clearly most of us do not we don't want to know about this we don't want to be reminded of this and we 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 hide from it we deny it we avoid it we minimize it We, we do whatever we can to not live with this fact And what we're doing here in practice is taking a good, steady, solid look at the conditions of our life. And this is what we see. This is the way it is. This is the way it has come to be in human life. It's a terrible thing to have to live with that kind of insecurity and vulnerability because we just feel so fragile. We recognize how fragile the conditions of our communal and personal, interpersonal, communal life is. And yet, it's far worse to be in denial of it. Because we won't take the necessary steps to develop those qualities of heart and mind that will serve us well when the tsunami of your life or my life comes rolling through. And so as we pay attention, as we bring this truth closer to our awareness, through our awareness, closer to our understanding where we see it more frequently, more clearly, more intimately, then we will do what we can to address it. And if we don't see it we'll skip along like we're in adult Disneyland and everything is just hunky-dory. That's the second meaning the second experience of dukkha. And as if that wasn't enough, there's a third. It's called Sankara dukkha. Now there's two flavors of Sankara dukkha. The first is the macro view and there's the micro view. The macro view says, we're born. And our parents or other primary caregivers doing the best they can have to take care of us. And for a few years, they feed us, bathe us, clean us, poop us, clothe us, cuddle us, love us, do what they can to keep us as happy as we can possibly be, because if we're not happy, they're not happy. Right? And let's face it, we all grew up in a dysfunctional family and we didn't get the love we needed and we weren't as happy as we would like to have been. Deal with it. Okay. Right? That's that's just the way it is. You may not remember it, but if you keep practicing you will. And as soon as our parents and other caregivers can get it together, they enlist the help of f- other family members, neighbors, pets, teachers, anybody they can to help carry the load of getting you through life at least to where you can take care of yourself. And then somewhere, slowly along the way, you gradually learn, we, I, you too, gradually learn, i got to take care of myself. And now I have to feed myself, and I have to close myself, and bathe myself, just as you do, and groom myself, and change my clothes, and do all that every day. Because mom and dad aren't going to do it for me anymore. <laughs> and nobody else is, either. And i got to do it. And if you don't do it, just imagine. You just say, to heck with it. I'm not going to do that. Don't bathe for a month. There's some dukkha. <laughs> <laughs> don't, groom, don't, don't groom yourself, don't change your clothes, don't, don't bother getting dressed, don't even get some good sleep. Dukkha. Right? So you've got to take care of this body, feeding it. And you've got to feed it every day, And you know, while you can live at home, sponge off your parents, or <clears throat> help them with the chores. Um, it doesn't cost so much. But eventually, you've got to leave the house, you've got to strike out on your own, and in order to get food, you got to earn money. Okay, now to get money, you got to get a job. And to get a job, you got to do a whole lot that includes first going to school for umpteen gazillion years, which in itself is a kind of dukkha. <laughs> and then you may end up with a nice degree, a huge debt, and no job offer. More dukkha. Eventually though, we figure out how to get food or get the money to get food, and then we go shopping. Have you ever tried shopping just at the end of work day when everybody else is shopping for dinner? And what's involved with the traffic, the traffic jam in the grocery aisle, the getting of the food, the cost of the food, paying for it, getting it home, taking it out of the bags, putting it in, in the cupboard, taking it out of the cupboard, putting it on the table, opening up everything, putting it on the pans, cooking it up, doing all that. So you can take three minutes, five minutes, eight minutes to eat. So you got enough energy to do it again in another four hours. <laughs> and then you got to take out the garbage and empty compost. Every day for the rest of your life. <laughs> taking care of the body is easy. We also have to take care of the mind. Now if you think taking care of the body is hard, you know what it's like to take care of the mind? you you got this mind. If you don't treat it nice, it gets impatient. Or it gets bored if you don't keep it entertained. It gets depressed if it doesn't get everything it wants. If it does get everything at once, it gets uh, jealous of those who have more. The mind is insatiable. And yet, if you don't take care of it, it'll really make you miserable. Right? And you have to do that and take care of the mind every day, every minute of every day, for as long as you live. And that can be one, two, three, four, five, six, for some of us, seven, even eight, Decades. Every day, 24-7, 365, you got to do this. At the end of which, what happens? Somebody else goes through your closet, picks out the best clothes they can find, puts it on your perfectly stiff, cold body, in a box, and puts you in the ground or in the fire. The end. That is one hell of a lot of investment in what? What did we get out of all that? It was, it was a struggle the whole way. I'm just telling you like it is. I, I'm, not, I'm not making this up, you know, right? I mean, that is, this is one way of looking at it, right? Some would say that's a pretty bad investment But we don't have any choice. We have to do it. This is Sankara dukkha. Because there's a certain endlessness to it. And it just goes on and on and on and on and you got to do it or it gets worse. And at the end of it, you're not even around to enjoy the end. (laughs) (sighs) Somebody else gets to take care of you. That's the macro view. The micro view is we're born. And we have these six sense doors, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind. And they are constantly being stimulated all the time. And you may feel stressed by that, but you can't stop it. The body is constantly going to feel sensations, and you can't stop that. The ears are constantly going to hear sounds. Even in in a quiet place, you can hear your own body circulation if you will. You can't get away from it. And your eyes even if they're closed you keep seeing things that you've seen before. (laughs) And the mind. Has anybody figured out how to stop their mind yet? From just chattering away inane meaningless chatter that would bore anybody right to death. Even as good as it gets It doesn't lie. It's not that good. Right? I mean, even those of you who just love to fantasize, it gets pretty old pretty quick. And yet, we can't get any relief from it. They're just constantly stimulated. So when Sayadaw Bandita's translator said, you know, experience is oppressive. You get it? It's like it's oppressive. It's like constant Stimulation. I know somebody sang a song about that. Constant contact or just all the time. And so it really is hard to find relief, just physical, sensory relief of all the stimulation. This too is sankara dukkha. So this is what dukkha means. You know, it means pain, physical and mental, emotional pain. It means the vulnerability and insecurity of conditions changing unexpectedly, or even expectedly. And it means the oppressive nature of having to experience all that comes upon the body and the mind throughout the full course of one's life. Good luck. (laughs) It's like, that's stupid. This is the way it is. This is the truth. This is the truth. I'm not kidding. And the Buddha saw that, this is really not all that satisfactory. You know, it really would be nice to enjoy some peace and quiet, but it doesn't come for free. So, this First Noble Truth, it said, is to be investigated. We all know that there's some pain in our life. We all know that there's some insecurity and vulnerability. We all know that, you know, the course of life goes from here to there and it's over. But we don't really take it in. Take it into our heart. Take it into our mind and really say, really ask ourselves: is this okay? Is this worth doing? Is this, do we have any other option? And is there any way to be satisfied, any, any, anyway, to enjoy all this, to be happy doing all this. And it's not as if some people or some beings don't experience it. You know, men have their dukkha, women have their dukkha. Young people, they, they got their dukkha. And we elders, pretty obvious, there's dukkha. Those who have fame and recognition, They got their problems. And those of us who are obscure and unrecognized for our real potential in the world, also dukkha. It's just pervasive. You might think that, oh, we lay people. You know, we've got more dukkha than those renunciate monks and nuns that live in the monastery in Burma and Thailand, Tibet, and other places. Go check it out for a while. They don't escape it either. It is a universal condition of all experience for all beings. Again, sometimes we personalize our own suffering. We personalize our own dukkha, you know, our own physical pain. Say, oh, I'm just unfortunate. I didn't get good genes and so I have this disease. Or I didn't take my vitamins today and I didn't run my on my treadmill for 10 minutes, and so therefore I've got these other conditions. But it's not that personal. If it wasn't that, it'd be something else, and we all have it. So it really is difficult to open to what the Buddha was really pointing to. This dukkha, it's not your fault, but you've got to deal with it. It's not personal. It's not it's not because you're inadequate or you know didn't get the right education, or the right parents, or the right food, or the right vitamins, or the right exercise. That's not it. It's the way it is for all beings, everywhere, at all times. And to open to that universal the universality of that understanding, that realization, is really hard. Which is why we encourage you to just pay attention. Just look. Just be aware of anything, everything that happens on a moment to moment basis in your life and you will see dukkha. You will come to realize it for yourself. This is the way it is. And initially it's painful, it's oppressive, it's distressing, it's depressing, it's stressful, it's just like bummer. But actually, As we open to it and become familiar with it, it becomes an understanding. And to the degree that we can see, oh, this is the way it is, and really come to grok it, understand it, take it in, and learn to live with it, then it's not just painful, it's not just vulnerability, it's not just oppressive. It is, this understanding is the key to freedom and liberation from it. But the Buddha, in his awakening, understood not only the um, truth of dukkha, he also was in curious and inquired as to, well, why do we experience this? Wouldn't you want to know? <laughs> why me? <laughs> why do, do I have to put up with this? And he saw that it was, in all cases, due to craving clinging, attachment, being identified with, wanting, experience. Now it's clear that if you want something and you can't get it, poor Mick Jagger, (laughs) no satisfaction, (laughs) right? And not only Mick Jagger, all of us, if you want it and you can't have it, bummer. But the Buddha said, you know, not only Wanting and not getting, but wanting and getting is also unsatisfactory. How can that be? Well think of it. So you want something. You do what it takes to get it. Whether it's getting money or doing gymnastics forever, whatever it is got to do, you get it. How long does it last? If it's alive, it is susceptible to disease and death. If it's valuable, you've got to insure it. It's probably going to be taxed. It's an object or a target for thieves, and you've got to insure it. If it's digital, it's outdated in six months. <laughs> and if it's knowledge, that is superseded in the next day somewhere on Earth. It's like, what can you get? That What can you acquire that is going to be so satisfying? Huh. Okay. So the Buddha understood that we, we seek pleasant experiences, and even in spite of all of our best effort and strategies to live pleasantly, we still fail miserably because there's so much unpleasantness in our lives. So the Buddha said, well, we seek pleasant experiences. That's clearly a source of dukkha, if you, whether you get it or not. That's dukkha. He said, not only do we seek pleasant experiences, we seek pleasant experiences in, infinitely into the future. You know how it's uh, making plans for paradise elsewhere? You know, who is it John Lennon said, "You know, life is what happens while you're making other plans? Yeah, while you're making plans about how good it's going to be at the end of the retreat, meanwhile, you're here. And when you get to the end of the retreat, you're thinking about Oh, wouldn't it be nice to go on another retreat again? In the, mean, in the meantime, you're not really there. And we, being dissatisfied in some ways or not yet fulfilled and content with the way things are right now, we make plans for the future, happiness, right? We don't make plans for future misery. We don't make plans for future difficulty and stress we make plans for future happiness which is laying down the tracks in our mind for continued existence as long as we can think of the future we'll get a chance to try it we've done that for lifetimes the Buddha said already still not satisfied we were having a discussion earlier today how many more times are we going to have to brush our teeth before we're finally done? How many more meals are we going to have to prepare, you know, imagining what we really wanted and prepare it and get it before we're done with meals? How many more clothes, you know, the latest whatever, or pairs of shoes do we have to buy before we're done with shoes? We've been doing it for lifetimes, lifetimes, and we're still not satisfied. We want more, and we keep planning for more. More life, more experiences, more dukkha. Some of us are really skillful and we think, I'm gonna stop wanting. I want it all to come to an end. I don't want anything. That's wanting. (laughs) Did you have a painful sitting today? You know you have a painful sitting and you just want it to end? What happens? It ends, something else happens. You want a good sitting today? Did you want a good sitting? Did you have a good sitting? Did you have a part of a good sitting today? You know, as one of our students said, nothing like a good sitting to ruin the rest of your day. (laughs) Why? Because, oh, you have a good sitting and you think, wow, this is it. Great. It's going to be like this for the rest of the retreat. You come into the next sitting, not to be found. Screaming agony. And you think, what happened? Nothing happened. Things change. Be careful what you want, you just might get it. And then what? Not satisfied. It's said that the first noble truth is to be investigated. But the investigation is through awareness practice. And it can only be understood through awareness practice, only be revealed and understood through awareness practice. The second noble truth is to be abandoned. The craving is to be abandoned and this too can only be effected by awareness practice. How are we going to abandon let go of what we don't know we're hanging on to? We have to see the mind strategies for acquiring, holding on, being identified with and in that that moment learning how to let go. It's only through awareness practice that you can do that. It doesn't happen any other way. There's some interesting studies done on happiness and craving. Recent studies show that what we think will make us happy doesn't make us as happy as we think it should. And what we think or fear or imagine will make us unhappy doesn't make us as unhappy as we imagine. When they studied lottery winners and those who had experienced catastrophic illness or calamities, they discovered that after a year or a year or so, the baseline happiness of those individuals who had won the lottery was the same after a year as it was the day before they won the lottery. Baseline happiness, no change from winning the lottery. No change from catastrophic illness or a calamity. The, the only conclusion we can reach is that we really don't know what will make us happy. And our happiness, or our idea of happiness, is independent of the conditions that actually exist. And happiness is not dependent on the external conditions, but it's more dependent on the state of our mind. Awareness to realize the first noble truth. Awareness required to abandon the second noble truth of craving. And the third noble truth is the Buddha's recognition that it is possible to reach, to experience, or to realize the end of suffering. Remember all that dukkha I was talking about? The Buddha realized it is possible to bring it all to an end. Now, sometimes when they talk about the third noble truth, they talk about these lofty, far-off Exceptional states of mind that only rare renunciates somewhere in the world, somewhere in eternity, might understand. But we're, we're here now doing this. So what's this got to do with that? That's what I want to talk about. How does our efforts today to be aware point to or confirm the Buddhist understanding that dukkha can be brought to an end. Let me tell you. One way that it happens is you're, you're paying attention. You're trying to pay attention to your experience and inevitably you will discover that at times you're hanging on to some memory, some idea, some plan and your mind is just obsessively, tenaciously hanging on to it and when you see that, you go, let that go. But until you see it with awareness, the mind is still holding on. And that's suffering. And when you let go with your mind, with the intention to let go, there is a feeling of relief. End of dukkha. Momentary, temporary, minor, but still noticeable. If you want to know what you're holding on to, look at your habits. When I first started Dharma practice, it was a couple of years after getting out of the university, in which I studied engineering. And engineering, before handheld computers, was a lot of slide rule and longhand mathematics. So I took a lot of math courses, advanced math courses, and it was just a tremendous amount of mathematical calculating done in the head. So I went on retreat, started paying attention to what's going on in my mind. And when my mind wandered, it wandered off into mathematical calculations. And I would come to finding myself multiplying out four and five-digit numbers in my head, just going <laughs> You know, and I'd say, do I have to be doing this right now? <laughs> I didn't, and I could let go. I didn't know I had that habit. I didn't know that my discretionary disk space in the wetware was doing that until I paid attention. And once you pay attention and you see what your mind is doing habitually, you can let go of a lot of it intentionally, instant relief, instant end of dukkha. Or at least that dukkha. But as you keep paying attention, you will discover that there are states of mind that arise frequently that are just so obsessive, whether it's your fear or your anxiety, your stress, your depression, you know, that it's just incessant. And when you notice it, even if you say, okay, I'll let go of it, it doesn't go, <laughs> it stays. You know, and the mind keeps perseverating on suffering, clinging, hanging on. And it isn't until the momentum of awareness gets strong enough to overcome the hindrances where the momentum of mindfulness cuts through aversion, cuts through uh, attachment, cuts through all the fear, the depression, the anxiety, the stress. And it can because the momentum of awareness when it's strong puts aside the hindrances and the defilements and through that development of the mind and the purification of the mind temporarily of the hindrances we get an experience we realize the end of that obsessive suffering there's no other way to do it you can't I mean you can take pills and that helps m- 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 mediate things, but still the mind gets pretty pretty tenacious in its habits and it's only through training that we're going to training the mind, practicing awareness that we're going to get a handle on the obsessing of the mind. Another way that we experience the uh, temporary but significant relief end of suffering in our practice is when the factors of awakening get aroused when the energizing factors and the tranquilizing factors are developed and brought into balance the mind is very poised very subtle very open very responsive to whatever arises. we're not caught in emotional reactivity to experience but we really have a balanced mind in relation to everything. Great pain doesn't scare us. Great pleasure doesn't seduce us. We can deal with all of it in a balanced way when the mind is full or fully, has fully developed equanimity. This is possible. You keep practicing, you, eventually you'll see the gradual growing of equanimity. And when the mind does not get caught in reactivity, where's the dukkha? No dukkha. Temporary relief, again, in not getting caught in these reactive states of mind. From that place of equanimity, the mind begins to understand the way things are. And it sees or develops insight into what are called the three characteristics. Three, the three characteristics are well-known, anicca, dukkha, and The first one, anicca, means impermanence. And so when the mind is in a really balanced, equanimous place, looking at the emerging or the arising experiences, moment to moment, but understands them insightfully as being impermanent. Not just because you're thinking, oh, this doesn't last but you're seeing it in every moment, that it doesn't last. The mind doesn't have to let go of anything because it doesn't even reach for what it knows isn't lasting. And so the mind isn't grabbing and holding on to anything and where there's no clinging and no craving, there's no dukkha. So when the insight into impermanence is that strong, that well-developed, the mind just doesn't reach to hold on to anything, no matter how pleasant, and doesn't push away from anything, no matter how unpleasant. The mind remains at ease. This is also a dukkha-free zone. The second insight is the insight into the understanding of dukkha. So the mind is... The momentum of awareness is so strong that it sees in every moment the dukkha characteristic of every experience. It's either painful, why would you grab onto that? The mind doesn't. Or it's insecure, unstable, and it leaves you vulnerable. Why would the mind grab onto that? Or it's just oppressive in its incessantness. Why would the mind grab onto that? When the mind knows the truth of dukkha fully, fully sees it, In every moment, in every experience, the mind doesn't reach for, doesn't hang on to anything. Where's the dukkha? That's a dukkha free experience, dukkha free zone. The third insight is into the impersonal characteristic of phenomena. Stuff arises because other stuff has arisen to give rise and give birth to it. Okay. There really is no inherent thingness to experience. There's just conditions unfolding. Impersonal conditions unfolding, creating appearances, which, if we're not seeing clearly, we get attached to and hang on to. But when seeing clearly, you understand that everything that experience, everything that you experience, is just an appearance in the mind. It's just an appearance in the mind due to conditions. And when you understand that, about every experience that you have. The mind doesn't reach for, it doesn't grab onto, it doesn't hold on to anything. It experiences everything. It's not like you're going to disappear into some big void, empty nothingness. Life still happens. Conditions still unfold. You still experience everything, but you're not hanging on because you understand. There's nothing there to hang on to. When the mind is fully developed, in insight and it sees these three characteristics it doesn't grab on to anything it is close to the experience of being free of dukkha but it's from this very balanced insightful place that the mind can realize what the Buddha was talking about in the third noble truth the dukkha-free zone of Nibbana, or the unconditioned. It is possible. It's not only for people who lived at the time of the Buddha. It's not only for monks or nuns that live in seclusion for decades in caves, remote caves. It is available to you. Westerners in the West practicing right here at IMS. It's not that remote. It's not free, you do have to work for it, but it is available, it is a reality. It can be realized through the mind that is developed. And when the mind tastes the unconditioned, you understand peace. Not just tranquility, not just joy, not just bliss, not even just being calm. You understand peace there's the realization of peace the unconditioned has no size shape color texture they say it's ineffable and yet its characteristic is peace and that is what is known it's possible only through practicing awareness nobody can give it to you you can't read it in a book You can't stumble upon it accidentally. But if you develop awareness, you can realize it. It can be realized. And the way that these dukkha-free zones or dukkha-free experiences are realized is through developing the path of the Fourth Noble Truth. And the Fourth Noble Truth is the Noble Eightfold Path. The Noble Eightfold Path is three practices, three trainings, which is what we're doing here. The first training is in morality or sila, purifying your speech and behavior as we are with the precepts. And by purifying the speech and, be, speech and behavior of the kalesas, the obsessive, the transgressive kalesas, we are able to enjoy the happiness of living in harmony with one another relatively. And that's, just think. If all beings on the face of the earth could live in harmony, that would be a tremendous reduction in suffering. That's what we're practicing here. How to live in harmony within ourselves and with each other. But even if we can do that, the mind can still be pretty obsessed. And so it takes a more powerful and yet a more subtle training in awareness, again, to put aside the hindrances, defilements, at least temporarily, in the mind. Purifying the mind on an ongoing basis of the, the, the obsessive defilements. It's possible. Already, all of you have had some experience for a period of a sitting, a period of days, different times during the day, where you're just you're not caught up in tormented state of mind, where it's just easeful, moving about, just being with your own mind and body, and it's OK. It's possible and it can be further developed to be a more steady or more recurring uh, state of being free of suffering. However conditions change. We never know just when some mind bomb is going to go off and Kalesa is going to arise and they're latent laying in the mind just waiting for the right condition when they'll sprout and we'll suffer and so the Buddha offered the third training of the Noble Eightfold Path is the practice of awareness leading to insight Vipassana which is what we're doing here. Vipassana is the development of the understanding of the three characteristics that I just spoke about and to the extent that we purify our understanding not just purify our speech and behavior, not just purify our mind, but purify our understanding through insight, to the extent that we do that, then we can realize the unconditioned. These three trainings are the path to be developed by each one of us. And the interesting thing is, if you aspire to develop that path, nobody can stop you. Nobody it's yours for the asking yours for the developing and it is within human reach that's why we practice here to lay down the, the tracks to you know kind of clarify our aspiration to to get some experience some guidance some understanding and to just keep doing it because it works And it's all done through awareness practice. Awareness of your speech and behavior. Awareness of your obsessive states of mind. Awareness of your misunderstandings of the way things are. That's why we practice awareness. That's why we point to it all the time. In whatever you're doing. Whatever activity, whatever experience. Whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. Whether you like it or not. Whether standing, walking, sitting, lying down, standing on your head. It doesn't matter. If you're aware, you're going to see and develop this path. And eventually, you'll be free of suffering. So let's sit for a moment and let the words quiet down. the great way the noble eightfold path the great way is not difficult for those who are not attached to their preferences if you want to see the truth then hold no opinion for or against anything to set up what you like against what you dislike is the disease of the mind when the deep meaning of things is not understood The mind's essential peace is disturbed to no avail. That's the third Zen patriarch. So thank you for listening to the Dhamma.